Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. And Willa Walsh, and you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. <laughs> Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today, we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled Enamored with These Beautiful Young Faces and You're Not White. So as per usual, we're going to go ahead and play the stories and then pause in between each to have a conversation about what we're hearing from the storytellers. And today on the show, uh, we kicked off season two of Welcome Project Radio last episode, um, and we wanted to continue to bring you some fresh topics. So last uh, two weeks ago was Mm 9-11, and we were focused on the impact that had on the Muslim community here in America. Today, we thought it would be interesting to discuss family and different ways of understanding family and making family. So um, our first story will be about adoption and the second story will be about foster care. Mm -hmm. And so this first story is titled Enamored with These Beautiful Young Faces. My husband and I, we've adopted two uh, girls who were born in China. When we were going through the uh, application process early on for our first adoption, I spent uh, many, many hours looking at uh, what are called referral photos. And a referral photo is the photo that an adoptive family receives um, when they have been matched with a specific child abroad. So at least in the China program, the way it works is you don't know you don't know who you're going to be adopting ahead of time at some point late in the process the chinese agency matches a specific child with your specific family and you receive the photo and so when you receive the photo it's 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 uh, it's a big event to help pass the time and as a way of encouraging myself i would go online and i would look at the referral photos that other families had posted and I was fascinated with these photographs, curious about, you know, where they were from, learning, you know, the different regions of China and just was just um, enamored with, you know, these beautiful young faces. So eventually we receive our referral photo and six weeks later we go and we um, meet our daughter for the first time and, and come home and, and um, finalize the adoption process. So fast forward maybe five years, I was watching a film. It's the story of a married couple. The wife ends up working in an orphanage. And I recall so clearly watching a particular scene in this movie where there's a very slow pan over this room of children in this orphanage. It would uh, linger on individual faces. And as I was watching this scene, I remember thinking, oh, look at her fine features. She really reminds me of Reina. And wow, look, that girl, she kind of has wavy hair. And that's like Sophia's. And boy, you don't really expect that. Oh, that person has a toothy grin just like Malin does. And I realized I was visually processing this group as a group of individuals. They, they jumped out at me as individual faces. And... 
I was just startled because um, I thought to myself, if this had been an orphanage in India, I can almost guarantee that I would have not visually processed the scene in the same way because I don't have a bank of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of images of, you know, the vast variety of faces um, like I do for China. I really think it was looking at all of those photos for all of those months that helped me finally see this group as just a bunch of individuals together. And it took a lot. It, it took a lot to get there. And I didn't even know that it was happening. You know, it was completely unconscious. It, it just, I think, takes a lot for our hearts and our minds and our eyes to get there where we start viewing groups that look different from us, not as groups, but as individuals. All right. Uh, hello again. And this is Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh. And this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And today on the show, we are discussing concepts of family and ways of creating family. So our first story for the day is focused on an experience of adoption. Where would you like to begin today, Willow? Yeah, so I mean, I was just going to roll right off of that. Like what the adoption experience was was like for her. Yeah, well, it starts um, with because she's adopting. Out, well, actually, I don't know. I mean, I, I have to admit, like I'm speaking from ignorance because I've never had um, any experience with adoption or adoption agencies. So I don't know if this experience she has with the faces is at all like um, applicable to uh, like adoption if you're adopting American children, or if it only has to do with the fact that it's an international adoption. But um, yeah, so she talks about how how many how long she spends on these referral photos um, in order to. I, you know, I don't know, I get a sense of like who the children are. Um, and it doesn't really, I don't know, she doesn't necessarily tell us, do, like, do she and her husband get to like tag photos <laughs> that they're particularly interested in? Um, or if it's just as the adoption is moving forward, they're sent these variety of, of photos. But um yeah, she's going online to look at them and at referral photos that other families had posted. So it's interesting because it sounds like maybe there's also a community of potential, you know, the adoptive parents that maybe are already supporting each other in some way. But I can, I can imagine, like, if you're eager to be a parent what it would be like to sort of pour over those photos and try to have a sense of who the child is on the other side of that photo. Yeah. I think it's a very endearing moment. Yeah, I, I read it as sort of like she, like they only get one photo when they have been matched with a specific child. So I don't know. I think about like, I also don't have any experience with this, but in my mind, I was thinking about like, what if you were, and this is not on the same like level, but like, what if you were like redesigning your house or something like that? And you were so excited to work with this like construction team who was going to come in and redo your house. And so you'd be so excited 
you know, for what it's going to look like, but you know, they're not there yet. You don't know when you're going to be on the schedule. So you're going online and you're looking at all these other houses that they've done already. And so you get to see like, I don't know, like excitement for the process, but I also wonder if this takes, I mean, like from what I know about the adoption process, it sounds like it takes like a long time. So I wonder if it's just like, I don't know, like her going on there and kind of pouring through these different photos as a way of like, this is a real thing. These are like real children. I'm going to get like a real photo of a real child. That's like going to be my child. But yeah, but yeah, <laughs> the process, I think. I I mean, the word she uses enamored is so evocative too. I feel like, like, um, it's not just excited, like enamored means there's already a sense of a connection that's developing. Um, a sense of care and um, anticipation. So um, yeah, I, I feel like there's this quality of falling in love <laughs> that's happening, even just looking at the photos. And she also says, um, the storyteller, that, you know, it's it's not just the faces, she's also interested in where they're from, and that's teaching her about the different regions of China. And I can only imagine that that would be important later in raising the children, um, because I think uh, adopting, especially internationally, but I guess it wouldn't only be internationally, if you're adopting outside of a, a, the, your own culture, but however that would be defined, then you're going to feel some sense of responsibility to be able to connect that child to the other culture or maybe even bring that other culture into your own family life. So it's a, it's a more tangibly available to the kids as they're growing. Um, I mean, that must be a choice that parents make for sure. Yeah. And I, I, I really like the, um, <laughs> the, the word that she used. And I noticed that the second time around when she was talking about like, a bank of hundreds and hundreds of faces that she sort of like cultivated through this like um I don't know I just I like it, it feels so like the process like natural going through and looking at these photos for her but that like sort of unconsciously she's created this sort of like this bank of images that like she wasn't even like trying to do it but she like created this thing inadvertently from this work and I wonder like is that important, not just for maybe the adoption process or like you were talking about, like in terms of incorporating, you know, the kid's culture from China into her home life, but is that useful in other aspects? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. I mean, I feel like that's the power of this story. It's not only about, it's not only a, a a topic about creating family, but it's also how we um, encounter difference, right? Like, and I, I feel like um, for me in the background is this sense of like um, uh, across racial groups, oftentimes um, like white people will see, uh, will like call a black coworker by the name of another black coworker, even though they don't look anything alike in terms of like height or body type or even hairstyle. Um, because there's this way that we, I think the word is allied, you know, like when you make two things different that 
you kind of compress them into the same. So you, you don't notice details that help you really facilitate um, that kind of level of distinction. I mean, it's kind of funny because actually um, Liz and I, so my partner, Liz, like people call us by each other's name, yeah. like all the time. And it's, I mean, sometimes I think like, sometimes I accidentally call my dog, my cat's name, you know? So <laughs> it's not always uh, that kind of elision that I was talking about earlier, but I think in a lot of cases it is, but Liz and I actually don't look that much alike. I mean, we are the same height approximately um, and maybe the same body type in a certain way. Um, but like I have blue hair <laughs> and she's way more like uh, masculine um, than I tend to present. So it, it's always a little bit like, oh, okay. I mean, I don't particularly have a problem with it. It's not like a microaggression on top of other <laughs> levels of homophobia that I tend to uh, experience. So for me, it's not that big of a deal um, where it hasn't been at least. But I do think that is what is powerful about this story. Um, I mean, do you wanna talk about a little bit what you heard in her story when she's watching this documentary five years after the adoption of their first daughter? Like, how did you understand, you know, what was happening for the storyteller? Yeah, so I mean, I think for me, like what I understood as she's watching this film and she's seeing all of these children in the orphanage and like noticing their specific features, I think like, she sort of makes this connection to like, all, you know, these this bank of hundreds of images of faces that I've created wasn't just, you know, serving me in the moment when I was trying to get excited about, you know, my adoption process, but it's like, it's actually kind of this bank is sort of sitting there as she's seeing different faces. And so she can like distinguish all of the kids in the room, but like as individuals, like she says. So it's like, it was like, this bank is helping her create I don't know, just like see people as individuals. And so I think like what you were talking about, like when, the what is the word, elision that you can do between people, I've never heard that word before, but like, like that you can sort of like ascribe these characteristics. I think for her that becomes tougher when she does have this like bank of knowledge that she's working from. And so she can see all of these individual features. And like, from what I know about like how we like look and classify people i think like I, I was reading this article about like how like people who are in majority white communities tend to do that with people of color who are around them because it's like you see one facet that's different from your own like skin color and your your like mind just goes boom there's my classification and it's not necessarily a conscious thing but it's like that's literally how we can resort to classifying people and so that's how i feel like swaths of people can get grouped into this like whole when they're not a whole you know like all of these kids in the orphanage are individual people so I think this like bank had created I don't know an easier way for her to sort of see people I don't know what do you think yeah I mean and it's interesting because she recognizes like if it had been uh, a documentary that was taking place in India she wouldn't have that um but, but she does have the awareness now. So even I think I'm guessing here, but 
I'm guessing if she had been watching a documentary um, and it was an orphanage in India, she might at least have recognized that as she's seen the kids in whatever scene it was that she was seeing them in, um, that she could catch that she was needing to generalize in some way because she didn't have these specific associations that help individualize, you know, or maybe she's even selling herself a little bit short. Like, I wonder if because of this experience working cross-culturally within her family, um, if maybe she would already see at least a little bit of how the Indian children would have been distinct from one another just because she's been sensitized to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to think about, I guess I want to take her at her word that she says, you know, it wouldn't have been different for her or it would have been different if it had been India. Yeah. I, I also wonder too, like, I don't know. I'm like, based on her story, I'm like, this sounds like a good thing to have. Like this bank of hundreds of images, like this feels, I don't know. And I, and I wondered like, does that serve a purpose? Do you think? And also how would we go about having a bank of hundreds of images without like looking at a bunch of kids every day, which I guess we could do, but I don't know, like I'm not on like adoption Facebook groups or something. So that feels like harder to seek out, but I don't know. Is that worthwhile? Yeah. So I'm going to answer your question after I remind our listeners that they are listening to WVLP uh, community supported radio. And this is listen up welcome project radio with me, Allison Schutte and co-host Willow Walsh. Uh, Reagan Skaggs is not with us today and we're missing her. So, but she'll be back. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I do, I think one of the things that you're pointing out is that um, this, this is a time commitment and it's a, an investment. And um, the storyteller in this case was just internally motivated by the fact that she was adopting. So if it's something that is, you know, that we want to get better at doing so that we can visually process groups. Um, yeah, if we're not internally motivated by some specific thing, then it would have to be outside kind of impulse. I don't know, like, and I mean, I don't wanna say that we shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. I feel like at least a lot of times in anti-racism groups I've been a part of, white people are told like, you know, do your homework so that you don't always have to ask the people of color in the room to educate you. So this could be a, a version of that, which could be fun in a lot of ways. Like in terms of where you go for the photos, you know, maybe that would be the first step. Um, but once you sort of landed, in a site, it could be really interesting, especially if you're connecting it somehow to like regions of a country, like whether that's regions in the US or like uh, different countries in Africa, say, or something like that. Like, is there a kind of set of features that change based on region or country? So you could make it a broader education process at the same time. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't think it's a problem 
or unimportant that her, that this storyteller's um, initiative was like linked to this other desire that she had to start a family. Like, I don't think that's a problem. I think a lot of the ways we unlearn some of our conditioning is because we need to, because we're invested for the, this other reason, X, Y, or Z, whatever that would be. I don't know. I feel like I might have some of that motivation lying around. Like, I know that I have definitely called people by the wrong name before. And I still ruminate on it. I can think of all the times that I've done it. It's so painful and I don't want to be that person. Um, but then also I think I just, but there's other, there's other times where I'm like, I don't know, for me specifically, like with men, like, I feel like I just, I constantly surround myself with women. And I find when I go to like a bar or something, you know, my partner does this too. <laughs> All these men look the same. I don't know. I can't like distinguish them apart from one another. <laughs> but for me, there's no like there's no initiative for me to like go online and like look at a bunch of pictures of men and like look at these are all the different features of a man's face. Like no, I don't want to do that. I don't really have motivation to do that. But so I want to like where I would where I would go from there. Like is it is it bad that I don't necessarily distinguish? I don't know, like men's faces? I don't know. Like I think about like, is there is there like a context and a purpose for having this bank of images and like, what does it do for you? I mean, that makes me think of the difference between what I would call like prejudice and what I would call discrimination. Mm. So in some sort of ideal world, um, it would be as important for you to be able to see men as individuals and not just as a group, right? At the same time, given that we're in a society where they're the dominant uh, group for gender in terms of who has power and privilege, like not being able to recognize them as individuals isn't going to harm them in the same kind of way mm -hmm. as um, if they were the non-dominant group. So. So the prejudice, uh, which is what I would say is like, you can't um, see them as individuals. That's something to be aware of and um, maybe lament, but it doesn't have the same power as discrimination, which like if they were the non-dominant group, you would be contributing, you're, you're only being able to inter interact with them as a member of a group is actually going to be adding on to their experience of being in a, like if we were talking about gender, a patriarchal culture. So um, I don't know. I think that distinction is worth making though. I guess I would say like, I would still want to strive to notice, recognize my prejudices um, as much as my discrimination, but I, I want to address the discrimination first, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, no, because I, like you were saying that people, um, like, sometimes call you and Liz out, like, interchangeably, that, which, the part that I don't understand, and my partner Erica has also been here for this, is when I will, like, walk your dog when you guys are gone, and your neighbors, not the ones that are right around you, but your neighbors think that I'm one of you two, which I think is 
so funny because I look nothing like you. But I it's like I think it's the combination of like the dog and maybe like the colored hair that's like enough features to where it's like like, oh hey, I love when you bring your dog around here. How's your partner doing? You're like, oh hi person. Like <laughs> I just <laughs> But I don't know. But so there's instances like that where I'm like, oh my gosh, you're honored. But and like that doesn't necessarily like reflect poorly in my experience. But I think you're right. And that the other times when it when it ventures more into discrimination, that is way more. We should be more aware of that. <laughs> so yeah, although now that you say that, I just think that's <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a bigger thing going on than I realized like I don't know what I mean but what do I mean by bigger thing um I mean it, I guess I because Liz and I are partners I've often like excused the elision <laughs> um because I thought well you know like we're together all the time mm -hmm. right so like somebody could inadvertently mix us up I, I totally get that but if it is true that you could be <laughs> I called one of us because you're walking our dog in our neighborhood, then that's more like about queerness than yeah. it is about uh, partnership. And then it's like, oh, okay. I, I remember, I don't know if this happened on a show or not, but you talked about being a student in, in my class, you know, before we had become friends and all of that. And, and you said that you knew right away that I was queer. And I, I never think of like myself <laughs> as giving off the queer like aura because I I've passed you know um for most of my life before I even self-identified or thought of myself as queer as as straight so I, I don't know maybe there's maybe there's more going on um but I still don't feel like it's not adding up to me in the same way it was like um you know if I'm biking and I get like cat calls, which I see as more gendered than about queerness, but I know Liz, because she doesn't always present as um, female, she'll get the drive-by shout that has to do more with her gender identification. And those things I feel much more powerfully because I feel the power that the other person is trying to hold over me, wield in some way, like to kind of, you know, put me in my place. Um, that's when I get like worried, angry, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I'm just looking at this last line that the storyteller gave us. Um, I think it takes a lot for our hearts and our minds and our eyes to get there where we start viewing groups that look different from us, not as groups, but as individuals. I love that she includes hearts with minds and eyes, because I do think that this is, well, the word has come up a couple of times already, but I just think that that this is a, this is a matter of love and care. And I think too, it like evokes this sort of like, like you're saying like care, but also hearts is like really, like has a really positive connotation, right? So it's like, I don't know, for me, like when I, do the elision I still don't know how to use it in a sentence I'll get there but like so when when I've done that before it makes me feel terrible because it's like oh I know I've messed up but it's like 
it's not coming out of this sort of like conscious like I'm trying to hurt this person and like I want to let this person know that in my mind they're interchangeable with this other person and that sucks because it's not coming out of this sort of like conscious I'm trying to put you down like the sort of like driving by yelling at somebody like trying to put them in their place it's like this sort of like unconscious thing that's sort of happening so I like that she also includes that with the mentality it's like hey you could be doing this thing but you might not know that you're doing it you might not mean to cause anybody harm but it's here and kind of like appealing to your sort of like maybe more emotional side of like this is something to recognize and this is something that we can sort of uh, move forward with yeah i think that's why we call microaggressions micro aggressions mm -hmm. and i know there's been some pushback um recently in circles i've been in of like getting rid of the word micro because somehow it seems like it diminishes the power or the impact of the aggression but i think it is worth making a distinction between the acts that are unconscious but we still need to recognize when they happen and or receive feedback from someone who tells us like hey you just misnamed me um and then the more overtly aggressive acts where power is being deployed you know so um yeah i appreciate that we have that category because i think it helps us see like really how powerful conditioning is whether it's around white supremacy or whether it's around patriarchy, um, that there's so much conditioning we need to own up to and, and begin to recognize, um, even if it isn't ever intentional. So that is going to take a lot of hearts <laughs> and minds and eyes to be able to do. Uh, this is WVLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio. Uh, by the way, this radio station relies on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. So please consider supporting the station by visiting the website wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax deductible, and I know that Willow and I would sure appreciate it. Oh, yeah. And we would um, feel like it was a little like, you know, shout out, like, hey, we like what you're doing. And so we're going to contribute to the station to keep it, keep it going, going. For sure. Um, and uh, our show is uh, Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And today we're um, discussing different definitions, concepts of family. Obviously that's attached to <laughs> other areas of concern. As you can tell, if you listened to the first half hour of our show, um, we ended up talking about all sorts of things <laughs> that didn't just seem to be about family anymore. Um, but for the second half of the show, we wanted to play a story that um, engages us in the area of foster care and what that experience might be like. Did you want to say anything more specific about the storyteller than that? Uh, no, other than the speaker and her brother um, talk about their personal experiences um, growing up in the foster care system. When I look back on a lot of things, I'm viewing them through a different lens. 
you know, and so I, I'm trying to just absorb everything I can from those vivid memories. And so I appreciate everything, the good and the bad, because I wouldn't be here if I didn't experience those things. Growing up in foster care was very interesting. I had to move a lot to different foster homes. Um, it was my younger brother and I. He's two years younger than me. And um, my mother kind of had struggles with substance abuse. So from that uh, is why we went into foster care. Placements were initially supposed to be temporary. Um, and it's not easy to always get a foster family to take siblings, even though the purpose is to try to keep them together. So a lot of foster families intend on taking one you know, child. And so when there's two, it can be kind of taxing. Also, my brother is of a different race than I am. And so it was difficult to place us in a family where he was accepted you know, uh, and then I was accepted. And so it was difficult being that we were biracial because he looked more white. And so when we were with white families, it was difficult for me. And then when we were with black families, it was difficult for him. I remember one foster parent in particular, she didn't like my little brother. She did, she, she had a huge bias against him looking more white than me. And so it was hard because that was my little brother, but I learned so much from her and she was supposed to be our mother and protect us, but she treated my brother very badly. And I didn't understand that. I think that was my first um, incident that really exposed what bias and prejudice and racism was. I didn't realize I wasn't white until I was probably 10 or 11. And my mother's white and I don't know what my father is. My foster mom actually told me, it was the same foster mom that kind of had you know some prejudice against my little brother she said you need to understand Tiffany you're not white and it was like something switched in my head it's like I immediately saw my skin color I saw that texture of my hair and my facial you know features and I looked at my little brother and he didn't look any different to me but I did I, I think that was like the first time I saw color and it's it's funny that I had that experience with my foster mom telling me Tiffany you are a black woman and society and how other people have perceived me throughout life, they don't know how to understand me. You know, and I've had people pull me aside and say, Tiffany, what, what are you? Can you, you know, we don't know what you are. I, I learned at a very young age that people have to know what you are and who you are so they can associate it with the level of respect and understanding to put to the interaction that they have with you. Why can't you just interact with me as a human being? Hello, this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, and Willow Walsh. And um, every week we play stories from the Welcome Project archive. And then we have a conversation about those stories, trying to better understand what was important to the storyteller and then connect it in some way to our lives or the lives of our communities. Um, where did you wanna start with this one? Such a powerful story. Yeah, yeah, she kind of goes in a couple she talks through a couple of different things, but maybe the first place we could start is her experience in the foster care system. Yeah, and what it was like uh, for her and her brother. Yeah, I mean, so what stands out to me, of course, is that as um, siblings who have different racialized identities, um, they then have different experiences going into the same foster home. If in fact they get to always be in the same foster home. Maybe I wasn't 100% clear on that because she says a lot of foster families, you know, only intend to take one child. Um, but maybe they were able to stay together. At least she doesn't in this story talk about being separated from him. Mm -hmm. But she does say that then the 
race of the family they're placed with has an impact on how they are treated. So if she is, if it's a white family they're placed with, then it sounds like she's going to experience more difficulty. Um, and then if it's a, a black family, I'm assuming black, but maybe it could be Latinx. I don't know. Cause we don't really get told. Um, then her brother who presents as white is going to have a harder time. And then she focuses on that one foster parent in particular who had a hard, well, she says, didn't like my little brother. Um, yeah. So that's, I think just really interesting. I certainly, uh, you know, I'm a biological child and my parents never separated and divorced. And so uh, my siblings and I, we all have the same parents and, um, you know, we, we have same similar facial features. I mean, it's like, we all look quite different depending on sort of which parents attributes we picked up. But um, yeah, I don't think I've ever had this kind of experience before of imagining a sibling being treated differently based on race. So it's, yeah, it's striking. Yeah. Yeah. I have no basis or foundation there because I'm an only child. So (laughs) I wonder, I, I think it's interesting. Something that really stood out to me in this story was like, like what the speaker describes as when she sees color for the first time. And I think like, it's so interesting to me because this is like this experience that she talks about her foster mother kind of setting her aside and being like, Tiffany, you're a black woman. Like, I don't know, like I, it's, it seems more positive than I usually like, I feel like I hear these stories being like, I feel like usually when it's like, I noticed I was different because people started calling me names in elementary school or like people started driving by and shouting things at me. Like it's always usually like really negative, but I thought this was really interesting that she kind of like the mom had set her aside to tell her this. And I don't know, like I I, I wonder like how you think that that impacted her going forward noticing the sort of difference between her and her brother. Yeah, I I think it is very complicated. Um, The way that story is edited, at least. So she says um, she was supposed to be our mother and protect us. Mm -hmm. So when I hear that, I hear she was supposed to protect us, which means that the storyteller felt that she was not actually protecting her Mm -hmm. and maybe that's because she was treating her brother so badly Mm -hmm. and as a unit you know I would think if your siblings going through foster care that it's your loyalty to each other which is the family connection because you can't rely on the foster situation to be stable enough to really feel like that's family um so because your loyalty is to your sibling, then if somebody treats that sibling poorly, you know, that's gonna impact you too. So I I guess based on the way that the storyteller presents the situation, it does sound like that foster mom was trying to, I don't know if protect is the right word, but she was trying to make the storyteller aware of her race and how, 
that meant she was going to be treated in the world. And it was like a kind of, it was supposed to be, I think, a kind of empowerment. Like you can't, you can't take care of yourself if you don't understand how other people are perceiving you and therefore going to treat you. And I also have the sense that the foster mom and here it's just all assumption, but was trying to like correct society's ills by like making sure that the foster children she had who were foster children of color, she was going to treat them better because they're not going to get that anywhere else. Mm. And so if she's have, she happens to have white foster children, then they're not going to get the same kind of attention. And the storyteller doesn't really tell us any particular details of how that foster mom treated her brother poorly. So, I mean, it, it, I have no idea the extent of that, whether it was neglect or lack of attention, or if it was something worse or stronger than that, right? Like an actual kind of physical abuse or emotional abuse or something like that. Um, yeah, but in any case, it does really feel like whatever the foster mom thought she was doing for the storyteller was not how the storyteller received it. And um, yeah, I think there, there's more that I want to say about like becoming aware of color, but I just want to let you in because that was, that was me talking a lot. <laughs> no, no, go for it. Well, I just think, um, I, so I need to find the line um, where it was like something switched in my head. It's like, I immediately saw my skin color and I looked at my little brother and he didn't look any different to me, but I think that was the first time I saw color. And I, so I'm totally, I totally take her at her word there that when she looks at the brother at the brother at this point and she's 10 or 11, she says, um, and he doesn't look any different. And yet at the same time, it's like suddenly like his skin is white and her skin is black or brown. Um, I, I just feel like though, I can't necessarily point to a time in my life when I was taught to, um, identify people by skin color that I've always been aware of skin color. Mm. So I can't identify the moment when it happened, but I just have this sense that it was always something I don't know. Taught is like kind of too strong of a word, but like delivered to me, <laughs> conditioned into me. And so to have a storyteller who didn't get that conditioning until she was explicitly told at 10 or 11, I just think that's really astounding. Mm -hmm. um, and it breaks my heart a little bit or the storyteller, because I think it might mean that there's a kind of innocence that is lost. Although maybe this foster mother is right, that it's also some information and knowledge that you need to know, given the fact that we do live in a, a white supremacy. And so you're going to be judged and treated a certain way by your skin color. Yeah, I wonder if that's based on the variety of, like, families that she was with, because 
I mean, I remember like my experience of race being a really similar thing. It's like really small. It's like over time. It's like through media and movies and things on TV. And it's, you know, it's like your parents don't sit you down and like, you are white and this is what this means because it doesn't really mean anything adversely for me. And we don't typically point out like, here are all the privileges that you have because of your skin color. Like, I don't know, my family didn't do that. So it's like, I don't know. So we don't necessarily have these conversations as white people. It's like, this is, here's your race awakening, but it's more over time. So I wonder, I don't know. I wonder how her brother felt in these scenarios too. Cause I think that would be a really interesting perspective to get because I, I mean, I'll bet that maybe her brother was experiencing it in a different way. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just so I'm just so intrigued by her experience of realizing that she's black, but then seeing her brother as the same, but also there's this foster parent involved who felt the need to tell her, like, hey, this is this is how people see you, this is who you are. But I wonder if that doesn't necessarily happen with her brother because he's white, so there's not necessarily that sit down of like you know, you people do not perceive you and your sister the same way type of thing. I don't know. Just the, the, the dichotomy of those experiences, I think, would be really interesting. But I don't know. I also, I really thought about the last line in her story, which really stood out to me, which is, um, she says, why can't you just interact with me as a human being? Like, why is my racial identity important for you to understand in order to sort of like give me a certain level of respect and understanding and i don't know i i mean I, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you thought about that last line but when i'm thinking about it i think about how people are treated differently in society based on what they look like and our sort of like individual cognizance of that but I think primarily what I'm thinking about is this sort of like, <laughs> immediately I saw that line and I thought of like Fox News and like this sort of like political correctness that like, I don't know, that conservative sort of tout of like, we don't, you know, we can't, we're stepping on eggshells all the time. I don't even know how to interact with a woman in the office. I don't know how to say anything wrong because everything, you know, everything I say is automatically wrong to the liberals or something like that. I know. This is like the clips that I get, but I wonder like if there's something more to what she's saying in terms of just interact with me as a human being. It's not just interact with me as if I'm a white person, which is I think typically how, I don't know, we're conditioned to, but it's like interact with me knowing that I have a different experience based on what I look like. And how can we just accept that everybody has a certain level of difference. And so how do we engage in these sort of conversations without needing to explicitly be like let me identify your like personhood and then now I know how to talk to you like how can we I don't know I think of it as a charge of like how can we view everybody knowing that we're all kind of living with these differences and then sort of be tuned into that in all of our interactions I don't know that's what I was thinking about <laughs> So um, you're listening to WVLP 103.1 FM, and you can also find this online, um, wvlp.org. 
So we're streaming there and we're also available here over the airwaves. Um, today, this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, and Willow and I are listening to stories that um, introduce us to different ways of thinking about family. The first half of our show, we were listening to a story about adoption, and now we're in a story about foster care, um, which is also a story about race. Actually, both have been about race and ethnicity as well, mm-hmm. and a national identity in the case of the adoption story. Um, yeah, I, I think you're pretty spot on with um, the sort of colorblindness when it's used as a an excuse um, versus what I feel like the storyteller is really asking here is for dignity. Um, and I, you know, I just I don't think there's I don't think this is avoidable. Um, in, um, in Buddhist practice or in Buddhist language, they talk about the difference between the absolute and the relative. And at least when it comes to race, like, or just using race as an example in the absolute reality, like there is no race, like it is all about human being or species being, I mean, Buddhists might even go beyond human as a category to species being, and we're all equal and equivalent at that level. But in the relative, because we live in this world of ever-changing like causes and conditions and appearances, um, there are these ways that like the human mind like experiences the world and sees the world, categorizes, makes distinctions. It's kind of a way that our brains have learned to navigate our environment and our communities. And, um, you know, we've built up values based on the difference that presents itself in the relative world. So um, both relative and absolute worlds exist at the same time. I mean, you can't, we have, we talk about them separately. You have to talk about them separately, I suppose, but there's really no difference. It's not like relative starts at one point and absolute starts at another point. They're completely interwoven um, on each other. And so um, it's just the nature of reality that we can't have only the one. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I feel like when people want problems to go away, they they only want to, to live in the sort of absolute reality. But um, so much of our like joy and pleasure actually comes from the fact that, that we are in bodies and we have access to this relative world, which has beauty and nature and um, you know experiences like eating. <laughs> like I don't want to give up eating, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like a taste uh, and or like music. Thinking about music and sound and like bird song and we're switching from summer into fall and like the sound of the cicadas is going to go away. And um, yeah, so I I just like, there's so much to cherish about the relative world. Um, So there's other times when that's all that we want, you know, because there's, it just is such a, um, it's a light. So we can't, 
yeah, just make these problems go away. And so I think um, when she says, why can't you just interact with me as a human being? Like that is a question that needs to be posed over and over again. I do think it is worth in any particular context looking at who's asking it and why they're asking it. In this case, um, at least for myself, I want to grant her that, you know, and in the case that we were talking about with the first story, I do want to grant people their individuality and not just, you know, blanket categorize them in a group. Um, that is that same question. Why can't you just interact with me as a human being? Why do you have to categorize me as like Chinese or Indian? Um, so, but there are times when if the, if the question was, why can't we all just see each other as human beings, then I think it's often a defensive mechanism of someone in a dominant category who wants to avoid looking at how difference is impacting like a, a dynamic in the room. Um, and so at that point, like, it's still a fair question to ask, but my response to it is <laughs> gonna be very different um because there it's less about dignity and more about ignoring a problem mm -hmm. yeah I love that I love that idea of like I don't know it, it feels like her question falls into that more like absolute realm of just like we're all equals we're all like sort of one in this can you just interact with me as a human being and I think like it sounds so simple, but I think as you said, this sort of like relative world that we have on top of that, it makes the charge like a little more nuanced. It's not as easy just to interact with people as human beings because we are up against these things as like, like I was talking about earlier, my sort of like conditioning through media and how I see people who look different from me or who grew up in different places than me. It's just, it all sort of informs this sort of like, I don't know, I guess it's bias, but I don't know, this, this lens in which I see the world and other people. And so it's kind of foolish to, to say like, I don't know, just forget that lens and just treat everybody the same, you know, because you can't just forget the lens because just because the lens isn't harming me, it's, it can definitely harm other people. And I think that's where it gets to be a little more tricky. And I think that's the sort of charge between this sort of absolute realm of like yes obviously the ideal is to treat everybody as human beings but i don't know the difficulty in that comes from knowing that we're not all coming from the same place or that we're not all having the sort of same lens and so how do we navigate those conversations because i don't know for me i think that's always particularly difficult because it's hard to i don't know have conversations with folks when I don't know, I just think about my experience in the Welcome Project and like the stories that I've heard from people and that has drastically changed how I talk to people, how I think about things, I think about more things than I used to. And then I can get just so frustrated with other people who don't have that same like level of like knowledge or like understanding. I think about like the region and I get really annoyed when people like talk bad about Gary or whatnot. And it's just like, but it's like, I have to realize that I, that not everybody has the sort of like bank of knowledge that I have now. And it's, and it's frustrating because it's like, well, I have this bank and I get frustrated when I talk to other people who don't have this bank. And it is just, it's, 
unjust, but at the same time, it's like we just all are on these different paths and this different level of cognizance for how we're, I don't know, interacting with each other. So I don't know. I think her question seems so simple. Just treat me like a human being, but it comes with like all of these different weights that I don't think we're necessarily, we know how to, how to engage with. Like, I just, I, I don't know how to engage with, I don't know. It's like, I know how to engage with people who look different from me, but it's like, I, there are levels to it that I haven't been brought up in. I don't know. It's, to sort of like quantify I don't know I, like, I can't really describe it but this this sort of like how we approach people who have a different lens than us and I don't know I think that's it's going to be so much more important 2020 and beyond and I think since like 2016 because we're all having this very specific lens in, in which which we're viewing other people our news lenses and so it's like we like we're like you have all these headlines from like the New York Times talking about like how do we how do you talk to your family members at Thanksgiving who have you know <laughs> because it's like we literally don't know how to do this and so I don't know I'm kind of going all over the place but I just think back to this like tr treat me like a human being and I just think it seems so simple but it's like we literally almost don't know how to do that anymore yeah no I agree I think that is a fair assessment and I hadn't really thought about it before in terms of the white paths initiative and how you and I and Liz and others who have worked on flight paths have really been steeping ourselves like our first storyteller in that bank of knowledge or a bank of faces and so we do have access to like relationships and intimacy of people in place that not everybody does so how might we have some <laughs> compassion even as we try to like when we come across people who make assumptions based on their limited knowledge mm -hmm. how do we pause and like not just berate them but like try to slowly open to them like you know there's this whole bank here in fact you can find it at our website <laughs> welcomeproject.valpo.edu um yeah so I, it, it actually is a kind of an affirmation of this work that we've been doing collecting these stories because that website like our website is this archive it is this bank of faces and bank of voices and it really is um a valuable way for people to start you know getting some of the nuance down so that they, they can meet people as individuals and not as just types or groups um so that's it for today <laughs> thanks for listening everybody and thanks again to our sponsors asana yoga center at asanacenter.com and roots market cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com we here at welcome project radio love to support our local businesses and if you enjoyed the stories you heard today you can find more stories like this one on our website as allison mentioned welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts and if you'd like to start a conversation with us or ask us any questions you can email us at welcomeprojectradio at gmail.com and if you're interested in supporting us which we would surely love um, you can support WVLP and this very show by going to wvlp.org support <laughs>